1: you return that
2: I might live in my We firmly established that this sword represented his word. Now, think about how appropriate this would have been. Because remember the issue here is false religion. This is what the church at Pergamos was up against false beliefs, the philosophies of man. These were the things that were creeping into the church. And so how would they overcome these things? Well, simply through the Word of God.
0: Each and every congregation is met with trials, struggles, and hardships. From the struggles that members of a congregation face within or the congregation as a whole, struggle is no stranger. Perhaps the most dangerous of struggles a church can face is that of spiritual struggle or compromise. In today's message, Pastor Mike reflects on the compromise of Pergamos. In his study, you'll learn how such struggles can be avoided altogether by remaining faithful to God's Word, the sword that rightly divides truth. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of Revelation chapter 2 as he begins his message, Pergamos, the Compromising Church.
2: we're examining these seven letters that Jesus wrote to these seven churches, the seven churches of Revelation. So let's pick up where we left off, and that would be in Revelation chapter 2. Our text is found in verses 12 through 17. The title is Pergamos, the Compromising Church. So let's go ahead and read that text of Scripture. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works, and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak, that is King Balak, to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and will fight against them with with the sword of my mouth. Now he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now, it has been suggested that this particular church, the Church of Pergamos, represented that period of church history from 313 AD to the rise of the papacy, which took place at 600 AD. And even as the first letter to the first church, that would have been Ephesus, chapter 2, in verse uh, 1, and then going forward, represented the first century church on the Apostolic Age, and Smyrna, the second letter that was sent to the second church, which was Smyrna, represented the second and third centuries, which was also known as the Persecuted Church. Pergamos represents that period of time that I've just mentioned, and it is uh, indicative of the compromising church. Now, let's talk a little bit about the location of uh, Pergamos. Pergamos was the capital city of Mysia in the northeast of Asia Minor, and Paul passed through this province, we're told in Acts chapter 16, embarking at the port of Troas on his first voyage to Europe. And Pergamos was about 20 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. It was an illustrious, religious city of wealth and fashion. So that's just a little bit of a background concerning this location. Now, with that said, that brings us to our first point. And if you're taking notes, write this down. An enemy stronghold. Now, you say, what am I referring to? Well, notice there in verse 13 we are told that this location was where Satan's seat or Satan's throne was. So, Pergamos, as I've already suggested, was known chiefly for its religion and temples that were erected to worship Zeus, Aphrodite, and Esculapes, the god of medicine, who was worshipped under the form of a serpent. And thus Jesus said, that this church was located in the city where Satan's seat, or throne, is. That is, uh, the devil had a powerful stronghold. He uh, had a, uh, a great influence over the people there at that location in Pergamos. Now, this religious city was an ideal location for the devil to establish his headquarters inasmuch as think about this, his most effective work is accomplished through false religion or false religious organizations. And through those churches or organizations, he leads people astray. You know, because they offer an easy religion, a counterfeit substitute for righteousness. It's sort of like a feel-good religion. It doesn't make any demands upon its followers. And so, the enemy had a stronghold there, the devil did, in this city, Pergamos. Now, that brings us to our second point, and that is unique difficulties. That is the unique difficulties that the members of this church had to deal with in their commitment and following through in their relationship with the Lord. Now, I think that it is significant. Notice there in verse 13, that Jesus begins his letter expressing. He says, I know where you dwell. In other words, I know what you're up against. I know your struggles. I know your your hardships. And listen, that was true then, and it's also true today. That is, Jesus knows about all of the struggles and the difficulties that you as well are going through in your commitment and following through with that commitment as members of his church, wherever that church may be uh, located. And for us, he knows our unique difficulties based right here in New York City. I mean, which is also surrounded by many of the things uh, that the members of the church of Pergamos had to deal with worldliness, false religion. You know, I think that we can legitimately say that New York City is the center of the devil's operations. He is strong here. He has a powerful influence here. Now, to encourage the church, notice there in verse 12, Jesus presents Himself, verse 12, He who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Now, this is not the first time where Jesus is depicted for us in this manner. Remember back in chapter 1, in verse 16, uh, when John first received this revelation, he had seen the sharp sword issuing from the mouth of our Lord. And I think back then we firmly established that this sword represented his word. Now, think about how appropriate this would have been. Because remember, the issue here is false religion. This is what the church at Pergamos was up against. False beliefs, the philosophies of man. These were the things that were creeping into the church. And so, how would they overcome these things? Well, simply through the Word of God. And how is the Word of God used uh, to combat these sorts of things? Well, sometimes it's used as an analytical critic of the mind and heart Of man, and the word just has that great capacity to help us to to see things as they really are, uh, to keep us on the straight and the narrow. You know, I want to give you a cross reference. If you turn with me to the book of Hebrews, we're told exactly that in chapter four and verse twelve. And again, the word of God—only the word of God—has this capacity. In verse twelve, it says, "For the word of God is living and powerful." and sharper than any two-edged sword, thats that, there's that metaphor again, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now this is very important, because the Bible tells us that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, and who can know it? So that's one way that the word is used to combat, combat these sorts of things. And then other times... It's used as an instrument of warfare. Remember in the book of Ephesians in chapter 6, in verse 17, as a part of the list of the armor of God, uh, we are encouraged by Paul to take up the sword of the Spirit. That is to use it aggressively. So that's another way that we combat uh, false teaching and error. False religion. Also, I want you to think about this. It was our Lord's weapon when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Remember, after he was baptized down at the Jordan by John the Baptist, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, the devil came and began to tempt him. And there were three powerful uh, temptations, you know, offering him an easy way to go to redeem the world back unto uh, the Father. And so uh, with each appeal that the devil made to our Lord, With each temptation, Jesus responds by using the Word, and He says, it is written. Like, for example, He said, Man shall not live by bread alone. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not worship or serve any other God but God alone. So the Word, this is God's way to overcome satanic error and opposition. And that's what the folks there at Pergamos were up against. So what did they need to do? Well, they needed to faithfully set forth God's Word. Listen, nothing but truth can defeat error. And we have this divinely inspired weapon of victory, and that is the Word of God. And so therefore, let us use it fearlessly. Let us use it aggressively. Now listen, when Jesus comes again, and it's recorded first in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15, upon his second coming, the church comes back with him to establish his kingdom upon the face of the earth. He'll use that word to smite the nations and to deal with all false teaching. Now, we'll we'll get into that actual event in one of our future studies down the road. Well, anyway, that brings us now to our third point, and that is a powerful testimony. And yes, the church at Pergamos did have a powerful testimony. So notice here, in verse 13, Jesus goes on to commend them. Notice what he says there. He says, you hold fast my name. In other words, they maintained publicly a love and loyalty to Christ in the midst of all of this darkness and worldliness and Satan's crowd, his influence there. And Jesus appreciated the stand that they made, which, by the way, was no small thing, because that commitment and stand that they made could draw persecution upon them. And and in just a moment, we'll see that that's exactly what happened. But notice in verse 13, in the latter part of verse 13, he says that you did not deny my faith. And so he praises them for their doctrinal faithfulness. My faith means faithfulness your faith in me, that is the church's faith in Christ, trusting him as a Savior and as Lord. And, of course, this included the practice of separation and purity and holiness. Now, also notice there in verse 13, there was one who died for his faith. And so his commitment cost him something. And we're introduced to, in our cast of characters, a fellow whose name was Antipas, You see that there in verse 13. Now, we really don't know anything about this fellow, except obviously he loved the Lord, and he was martyred because of his commitment to Christ. There's no historical record of this man anywhere. But what I think is very interesting is that, although we don't know anything about him, there's no historical record. He is eternally remembered, and notice, recorded here in this text by God. So, let me ask you this question. If we were exposed to this supreme test, would we stand firm as did Antipas? So, the question, is Jesus more precious to us than life? Listen, no trial, however severe, justifies unfaithfulness. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 2. It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Now that brings us to our fourth point, and that is a few things that were wrong. So notice, it's sort of like a transition here in this letter. He first of all commended them for all of the good things that were going on there within the church, but then he brings this indictment against them, things that needed to be corrected. So this is a part of Christ's indictment. So after approving all that could be approved at Pergamos, notice in verse 14, Jesus proceeds to admonish them. Let's pick up there in verse 14. He says, But I have a few things against you, because you have there those, and notice that word those, we're going to come back to that in just a moment, who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. That is, to compromise in their relationship with the Lord. Okay, so again, I want you to notice that the assembly, that is, the whole assembly there at Pergamos, is not charged with being one with the Balamites, but apparently, and this is what they were guilty of, They tolerated them in their midst. They tolerated them when they should have tried them. I mean, all of this stuff that was creeping into the church was going on right under their noses. But they didn't do anything about it. They allowed this to go on. Now, what was the danger in all of this? Well, the result, of course, would have been minimizing sin, reducing the church's spirituality, to a subnormal state. Remember, uh, Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, in chapter 5 and verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And in the scripture, leaven always represents sin. If we tolerate sin, even a little sin, you know, it has a, a way of compounding and snowballing and it has that kind of a domino effect until it, it permeates the whole lump, the whole uh, church. Now, I guess we ought to talk some about Who was this fellow that's named here, Balaam? And what sin does he represent? Well, his history is actually recorded for us in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers over a period of four chapters, Uh, that would be Numbers chapter 22 through 25. Let me just summarize for you those things that are recorded of him there. Balaam was someone who had the gift of prophecy. He had God's word in his mouth, but his heart was possessed with a satanic covetousness for the honors and rewards of this world. You know, he, he was probably someone who was, yes, endowed by God, may have started off well and good, but somehow, some way, during some period of time, he turned and he began to make merchandise of the gifts that God had given him. He began to make merchandise of the gospel, prostituting it for gain. Now some further background. Notice also in our cast of characters, we're introduced to this fellow whose name was Balak, there in verse 14. Now this is a reference to King Balak of Moab. He was the king of the Moabites. And he offered Balaam a sizable fee to curse Israel who was about to cross over the Jordan into his land. And Balath feared Israel. And listen, he had every right to fear Israel. Remember, God was going before his people Israel uh, to conquer and defeat all of the enemies there in the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised them. So he was going before them, and every enemy that they came up against in conquering that land was defeated by Israel, by the hand of the Lord. So he had some legitimate reasons to be concerned uh, about. Now, Balaam refused the king's offer to help defeat Israel, but later caved in, in spite of God's warnings. So Balaam conceived an evil scheme to produce their downfall. When he realized he could not curse them, He proposed to corrupt them. Now, this was the counsel that he offered the king. Hey, listen, king, send down your young virgin Moabite girls to seduce the Israeli men, and then invite them to participate in moral acts of worship. You see, they would enter into these immoral acts of worship in the way that they worship their gods. And they had these images that they brought along with them that depicted these sexual activities, uh, the different forms of sexual activities, the different positions of sexual activities that they used in their worship of these false gods. It, it, you know, The truth of the matter is, this is the first form of pornography. And they were defeated through this unholy alliance. They agreed. They embraced these women as they came down to them and enticed them to participate uh, in these acts. And so, thus they were defeated through this unholy alliance, this unequal yoke. You see, Balaam knew that God would shut them down because, simply, that is the effect that sin has on a person's life. He couldn't curse them, so he counseled King Balak, to, again, as I just mentioned, the women sent down and seduced and tempted these young men. Uh, they succumbed to that temptation. They entered into these illicit, immoral acts and they begin to worship these false gods, thus bringing the judgment of God upon them. And listen, and the devil was behind all of this. When the devil, let's bring this down to personal terms. When the devil failed, think about this going back to the history of the church when the devil failed to wipe out the church for example the Church of Smyrna which represented the second and third centuries which was also known as the persecuted church during which time six million Christians were martyred for their faith their faith in Jesus Christ so when the devil failed to wipe out the church through murder, he resorted to mixture. And how did he go about that? He joined the church. So it was this Balinism and it was the evil principle that came into the church at Pergamos.
1: In my Father's house There's a place for me In my Father's house where I love
0: to be. Oh, my the book of Revelation is filled with symbols and numbers and pictures that seem beyond comprehension. Yet each one has a purpose and meaning. This book takes you into the end of the world, the time when Jesus will return to redeem the earth and rid it once and for all of evil. It's a time that may be sooner than you think. And that's why we're so glad you joined us today to study this important final book of the Bible on In My Father's House. If you'd like to hear more teachings from this series in Revelation, or if you want to explore Pastor Mike's studies in the other books of the Bible, just visit HarvestNYC.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. That way you'll be notified each time we post a new edition of the show. We want to meet you, too. If you're going to be in Midtown Manhattan, come join us this Sunday for worship at Harvest Christian Fellowship. You'll be able to reserve your seat and get directions at harvestnyc.org or join us virtually. We're streaming each Sunday and Thursday, so everyone has the chance to attend and worship as a community of believers. That website, again, is harvestnyc.org. As we wrap up our time with you today, we'd like to let you know that we're praying for you. You are a valued listener, and we're grateful to have you tuned in to learn about the love of God from the pages of Scripture. With that, our time with you is coming to an end. Join us next time for another edition of In My Father's House.
1: There's a place for